Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Thanks, worship team. How about that worship team jumping into the carols, eh? Yeah. When I first got here, this is our, I think our sixth Christmas uh, at Meadowbrook Church, and I said, I want carols. And they said, okay, so like one carol? And I said, no, like all carols. I would like all carols. And they have stepped up to the plate in such an awesome way. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 2, please. I'm excited to get into some Christmas teaching with you as we move through December. Luke chapter 2, if you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1027 in that Bible. Uh, so a few weeks ago, as Christmas stuff was coming out in all the stores and, and lots of places start even right after Halloween, as you know, I was at a grocery store here in town, and, and there's only three, so I don't want to name them, but you'll figure out who it is potentially, especially if you go there. And I was walking around grabbing a few things, and I saw a sign that said, Shop Like Santa's Mother. And so I looked at that sign, and I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I looked at it. And then I said, I don't know what that means. Shop like Santa's mother. And there was no explanation, there was no content, context, and it was everywhere. So like over by the bacon, shop like Santa's mother. And over by the ornaments, shop like Santa's mother. Over by the dairy, it's shop like Santa's mother. And I'm getting annoyed as I see it over and over and over again, because I don't know what it means. I don't have any, I can't begin to imagine what that means. Shop like Santa's mother. And so every time I see it, I'm going, I'm like, Santa's mother isn't even a thing. Like, that's not a character in the Santa story. If it had said shop like Mrs. Claus, his wife, it still wouldn't have made any sense, but I at least know who Mrs. Claus is. And so I'm thinking like, what can this possibly mean? And I'm trying to think, I'm like, is this like a cultural reference that I've missed? Is there something in a story that I just don't understand? I'm going, oh, you know what? In that movie, Fred Claus, uh, Kathy Bates does play Santa's mother, but I don't think there was anything about her shopping habits in that movie. And there was a point, there was an elderly lady and she was staring at one of these signs and I thought, oh, well, maybe it's a generational thing. Maybe I just don't understand it. So I said, do you know what that means? And she just looked at me and went, I don't know. And so I'm like, oh, and so I'm, I'm annoyed because I really love clear communication. It's like my favorite thing in the world. And when I'm preaching, I am putting a lot of energy into trying to make it clear and easy to understand. And when we're talking about what's going on in the church, like we have our website and we have Facebook, and we have Instagram, we have the bulletin, we have announcements, we have weekend, weekend update. Like we're at a point where if you don't know what's going on at Meadowbrook, I love you, but it's your fault entirely. And Sarah's on Kids Club, you know, if you want to know what's going on in Kids Club, every week she's posting, here's what we're doing, and there's scripture references and everything. So we really put a ton of energy into clear communication. We want everything to be clear. And so I'm looking at this, and I'm saying, that's a terrible slogan, because I don't know what it means. I don't know what you're trying to tell me to say. And so I get home, and I'm saying to Sarah, have you heard of this, like, shop like Santa's mother? Like, what does that mean? So of course she pulls out her iPad, and we Google it to see, is it just something that we missed? And all it does is it takes you to the store's website. Website, and when you're on the store's website, it says shop like Santa's mother. How do you shop like Santa's mother? Get your gifts, ornaments, and turkey all in one place and all at a low price. And I went, what in the world is that? How was I supposed to know that from those four words? You just made something up entirely. And I was complaining to someone else about it this week and they said, hey, you were thinking about it, talking about it, and they got you to your website. So, you know, you went searching. And I went, oh, maybe the stupid thing is brilliant marketing. I don't have any idea. 
But I, I just, it got so stuck on it because I was like, man, if you're going to have a slogan, if you're going to have a tagline, it needs to make sense. It needs to be understandable. And if it's not, then it's not really helpful for what you're trying to get across. We really value communication that is clear. We want to understand things. And when we don't understand things, sometimes that's frustrating as I experienced in this silly little story. And so as we come into Christmas time, we sing these songs, these carols, and a lot of these songs uh, are a couple hundred years old, or maybe even older than that. A lot of these songs that have sort of remained as classic kind of anthems of Christmas time. Uh, they've withstood the test of time. The anointing on them has proven strong, even all of these decades and generations and centuries later. And, and yet, sometimes we sing these songs and we don't always understand them because they were written in a different time. And sometimes they use language that we don't use anymore. They use phrases that we don't use anymore. Or they're referencing something that maybe sounds profound, but we don't know what it's referencing or, or how it kind of connects to everything. And so a couple of years ago, we did a little mini-series at Christmas that we're going to jump into again this year that we call Christ in the Carols. And what we did a couple of years ago was each week we took a carol, a Christmas carol, and we just walked through it. We, we took it and we went through it, kind of walking through the lyrics, unpacking what they mean, using the carol as a way to tell the Christmas story with lots of scripture to support it. And so we're going to do that for the next few weeks here as well. And so when we did that a couple of years ago, uh, we did Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which we sang this morning. We did Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and we did Oh Come Let Us Adore Him. And so we'll do this for the next few weeks as well. And you're going to learn some new carols maybe, or in and even if you know the carol, uh, our hope is you're going to go deeper with it and understand more about the scripture behind it. We're going to go through lots of Bible together as we do that. And you're going to be able to sing it with a new understanding, with a new revelation. It won't just be singing through words because you're going to comprehend it, unlike the stupid slogan from the stupid store. Uh, we want things to be clear. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Luke chapter 2. And today we're doing Angels from the Realms of Glory, which we sang once already, and we're going to sing it again before we go. Luke chapter 2, and we're starting in verse 8, well-known part of the Christmas story. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So that's the story uh, that kicks off the title, obviously, of the carol we're looking at today, Angels from the Realms of Glory. Uh, it's an old one. It's from the 1800s. It was written by James Montgomery, who originally wrote it as a poem. It was published in a book of Christmas poetry. And then someone along the way decided, hey, we could set that to music, and that could become a worship song for us. And so it developed over the years from a poem into this carol. And, uh, and we don't sing it or hear it that much. It might be new to some of you today, or it might be really, really old to some of you today. And you went, hey, hey I haven't heard that in 40 years. That's awesome. So we're going to walk through this today, and we're just going to take a look at the lyrics. And uh, that scripture we looked at today is kind of our foundation scripture, but we're going to look at lots of scripture as we go through it. So if you're taking notes, you're going to be writing like crazy. Are you ready? Hands ready? Pens ready? Paper ready? All right. 
So, angels from the realms of glory, wing your flight o'er all the earth. Ye who sang creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. And so that is, again, launching out of the Luke 2 story uh, of shepherds who are minding their own business, just doing their job, and all of a sudden all of these angels show up. Angels from the realms of glory. Angels are tricky in scripture because there's not a lot that's crystal clear describing them or describing their nature necessarily, but then there's also a bunch of stories about them. And so a lot of the theology we develop around angels comes from, well, Abraham met an angel, and then Joshua met an angel, and Mary met an angel, and so you're trying to kind of cobble it together. One of the clearest and sort of simplest definition of angels is what we get from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that says, are not all angels ministering spirits? sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. And the Bible says more than that, of course. But just if you want a snapshot of what an angel is, it is a spiritual being, uh, and they are here to minister to us, apparently. And, and Scripture uh, talks in the Psalms of how they were created kind of greater than us, uh, higher in the order of things, and yet they are here to, to serve us and minister to us. And, and uh, we see this in Scripture over and over again, where an angel will show up and, and bring a, a revelation or bring a message from God or, or bring some comfort and encouragement or, or bring some challenge and conviction or a warning. Uh, and we see these examples showing up in Scripture throughout. So angels come from the spiritual realm. They are not people, although they often appear in scripture as people. And so angels from the realms of glory is the angels who come from that glorious spiritual realm. And we have these stories in scripture that sometimes that realm just kind of breaks forth onto earth. Sometimes the line between the natural and the supernatural just floods wide open. And in the Luke 2 story, that's exactly what happens. Heaven just breaks out on earth in a way that we don't maybe normally see in our day-to-day -day lives. So the angels from the spiritual realm, the realms of glory, wing your flight over all the earth. Interestingly, nothing in our text actually says they're flying. Uh, nothing for that matter actually says that they're singing. Uh, but the traditional view of angels, and there's a, di a few different passages that talks about different angels with wings and different things. They're often singing in scripture. Uh, and so it's definitely a traditional idea that the angels have broken forth from glory. Uh, they, are, they have flown across the earth and are proclaiming this, this whole story. Um, ye who sang creation's story uh, now proclaim Messiah's birth. And that's a reference from the book of Job. And when God is talking to Job at the end of the book, uh, he is challenging Job on, on basically the fact that God is God and Job is not. And he's, God is saying, you know, I was there when the foundations of the world were formed. You weren't. I created everything. You didn't. Job, I'm God and you're not. And one of the things God challenges him with in Job 38, 6 and 7 uh, says, On what were its the world's footing set, or who laid its cornerstone, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Just a beautiful piece of poetry there. That at the beginning, when God was laying the foundation of the earth, when God was doing his creating, the morning stars and the angels were there and they were singing and shouting for joy. They were celebrating with God as God was doing his creating. So ye who sang creation story, you angels who were there at the beginning and who were excited then and who were proclaiming and singing and shouting for joy, now you come as Jesus is born and you are proclaiming and singing and shouting for joy that Messiah has come. You who were there at the very beginning are here in this story as well. 
and you are proclaiming that Jesus has come. You are proclaiming that the Lord has arrived. And then there is this invitation throughout the song over and over and over again. So come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. And that is our job with the angels. We are joining in their song. They sing praises to God around the clock, around the heavenly throne. We get to enter into worship with them as we lift up the Lord. So come and worship, come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn King. That's really the point of Christmas time. As we are, are celebrating and coming close, we have our Advent candles burning and every week we'll light them and they're going to sort of serve as a visual countdown uh, as, as the remembrance that Jesus came and, and they will sort of remind us visibly that Jesus came as a baby. And as we come to him, we come in worship. We come and bring our worship. The word worship literally just means to exalt or to elevate something else. And so we do that all the time. We do that in unhealthy ways and we can do that in good and godly ways when it comes to the Lord. But to elevate and exalt something, we often sort of equate worship to, to our musical worship and that's a huge part of it. But scripture says we worship not just with our songs, we worship with our lives. We worship with our obedience. We worship with our giving. We worship with how we treat other people. We worship with a life that is devoted to God. Our musical worship is a huge part of that, and that's a very practical part of that. It's not the only part of that. And so we come to worship him on a Sunday morning with our worship, with our devotion, with our gifts, with our time, with all of these things, and we come and we worship together. Next verse, shepherds in the field abiding, watching o'er your flocks by night. God with us is now residing. Yonder shines the infant light. And uh, it's just interesting that of all the, the people, of all the places, of all the ways that heaven could break forth into earth in this moment, God chooses to reveal himself to shepherds who are, are just ordinary people. They aren't prophets, they aren't uh, influential, they don't have power, they don't have authority. They are just sort of average middle-class people like most of us are, and they are just at their day job. It's nighttime, but they are at their job. They are laboring away, they are minding their own business, and they, of all the people on earth, are the ones that God chooses to reveal himself to that God chooses to bring this special encounter and this special message to. There's prophetic significance there that Jesus, of course, was going to be a shepherd, the good shepherd who laid his life down for his sheep. But it's just, yeah, if you can put yourself in their shoes, they're minding their own business, doing their own thing, when all of a sudden they have an encounter that none of us have had close to. Uh, where heaven just breaks forth on earth and they, they hear from heaven directly and they get a revelation of Jesus that the whole world had been waiting for up until that point. And it just reminds us that as Jesus comes from the very beginning, Jesus is reaching out to everybody. Jesus is not coming for the powerful. He is not coming for the wealthy. He's not coming for the spiritually gifted necessarily. He's coming to reveal himself to everybody. And he is going to reveal himself to wise men who have some wealth and power and authority, but he's also going to reveal himself to ordinary people because that's what most of us are. And Jesus comes and starts to show himself to everyone uh, as the shepherds are the first to kind of taste that. God with us is now residing. Some versions say God with man is now residing. God with us comes from uh, Matthew verse, chapter 1, verse 23, who is actually referencing Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And if you've been around, you know that's my favorite name of Jesus in the whole Bible. There's a lot of different pictures and metaphors. Jesus is called lion and lamb and savior and redeemer and healer and all these things. They're all beautiful. Uh, this is my favorite one, Emmanuel, translated as God with us. 
that not God far away, not God on a cloud, not God in another realm of glory who is untouchable and unapproachable, not God who is far away, God with us. That in Jesus, God came down with us and he walked with us and he suffered with us and he struggled with us and then he overcame it all. And as he's leaving, he says, I'm not leaving you alone. God with us, uh, Jesus is leaving, but God with us is now gonna be the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will now be with you. I'm not leaving you alone as I go. The Holy Spirit will now stay and he will lead you and teach you and guide you in everything that you need. God with us is now residing. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of Christmas time that it's not a baby, it's not just a savior, it is God with us. God has come down with us. Yonder shines the infant light. The Apostle John in his gospel doesn't give us a Christmas narrative. He talks about it a bit more metaphorically in John chapter one. And in verse nine, he says, the one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone was coming into the world. That's Christmas time right there in a sentence. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Yonder shines the infant light, more than just a baby, more than just a hero, more than just a savior. Light was coming into the world. And in a world that was bound in darkness and sin and baggage and everything, light has arrived. And John would say, and no matter what is tried, the darkness has not overcome it. For 2,000 years, people have tried to stomp out this gospel. Empires have tried to wipe out the church, have tried to stop the spread of the gospel, have tried to discredit the Bible, have tried to tear down anything to do with Jesus or anything that would point to God. But true light came into the world 2,000 years ago, and the darkness has not overcome it and will not overcome it. Because darkness doesn't get to overcome the light. That's not how light and darkness work. And so Light has come into the world in this baby that we celebrate. And so the hymn moves on, and often in some of these old hymns, there's a very sort of standard structure. There's usually a verse that's kind of an intro verse, and then there's often a verse that celebrates God's role in creation, and then there's a verse that celebrates the gospel, and then there's a verse that celebrates his second coming. There's a bit of a theme in how they used to write songs. And so the song now moves into really the nature of the gospel. Sinners rung with true repentance, doomed for guilt to endless pains. Justice now revokes the sentence. Mercy calls you, break your chains. Come on, how good is that? It's my favorite verse in the whole song. So sinners rung with true repentance. We did a series on the book of Acts earlier in the year. Uh, we spent some time talking about this verse, Acts 2, 38. This is the gospel call. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. So there is the acknowledgement that I need to be forgiven, that Jesus is the only one who can forgive me, so I need to ask him for that forgiveness. But that word repent is so important and is often misunderstood. We sometimes chalk up repent as just acknowledging, confessing our sin, saying that we're sorry. And that's where it starts, and that's a good start. But if I hurt my wife and I say, honey, I'm sorry, and then the next day I hurt her again and I say, honey, I'm sorry, and the next day I hurt her in the same way and I say, honey, I'm sorry, I'm not repenting at all. I'm acknowledging and I'm saying sorry, but repentance means literally to turn. It means to change. It means to stop going in the direction that you're going. It means to turn in a new direction. It means to be changed and to go that way. And so when it comes to our sin, it is not enough to just say sorry. That's where it starts. It's not enough just to confess it to the Lord and to, to a, a partner, an accountability partner. That's part of it. 
But we're looking for more than that because that's not repentance there. That falls short of repentance. If it's just sorry and just acknowledging it, repentance means we are working to change. We are turning away from what we are walking in. We are moving away from our sin. We're not okay with our sin in our life. We are not making excuses for it. We are not repeating it and just saying sorry over and over again. We are becoming different. We are moving in a different direction. So repent is the gospel call, not just believe, but repent, believe and repent. Be baptized as you seek the Lord's forgiveness and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so repentance is a harder word than maybe it sounds like, right? Because I can say sorry easily and I can acknowledge my sinfulness easily. But if I am staying in my sin, repeating my sin, not moving out of my sin, then I'm not repenting. I am, I am confessing, but I'm not repenting. Repenting means to turn, and it takes more out of us. It takes more uh, effort on our, on our behalf, and it requires us to, to seek the Lord because we can't do it entirely on our own. And so repentance comes to, to, the call comes to pull us away from sin. Uh, the picture we often use of sin, the nature of sin, is that sin separates us from God. And, and that's the, the sort of the classic picture. Sometimes it's viewed as like a cliff. There's a great divide between us and God. And that we were created to walk with God. We were created to be in fellowship with God. We were created to be in an intimate face-to-face -face relationship with God. And Adam and Eve started it, but we have all repeated it. Scripture says that we all, like sheep, have gone astray. We have each turned to our own way that we were meant to be in fellowship with him, but every single one of us said, no, thank you, I'm going my own way. And it's not so much that sin separates us from God, it's that we have separated ourselves from him through our sin and through our disobedience. Because if all we say is sin separates us from God, it's easy just to blame it on the sin and not the sinner and take responsibility there. That we have separated ourselves from him. And if he is the source of all blessing, and if he is the source of eternal life, that is a huge problem. Because if he is the only way to get eternal life, and I have separated myself from him, then I am what the song says, I am doomed for guilt to endless pains. I am cut off. I am cut off not just in this life, I am cut off for eternity. I am, I am separated in the worst possible way. And so the call of the song comes, sinners wrought with true repentance. Those of us who are sinners, who are truly seeking after him, who are truly seeking uh, to turn from our sin, who are truly repenting, who are truly coming after him, without that, we are doomed for guilt to endless pains. There is no other solution to it. The wages of sin is ultimately death. But even before sin gets to death, there is a world of consequences for it just in our lives if we don't turn from it. Uh, sin is toxic. It, it destroys us. It wounds our heart. It hardens our conscience. It destroys relationships. It destroys reputations. It does all sorts of junk before we even get to the, the death and eternal separation part. Sin is bad for us. And so there is this uh, struggle where we are, are sinners and we are turning towards him uh, without him, without anything he's done. Uh, we are doomed. We are on our own. We have separated ourselves from him and there is no way for us on our own to make our way back. But that is not where it all ends because Mark 10, 45 says, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
that where we have chosen to go our own way, according to scripture, we have separated ourselves from him. We have cut ourselves off from God and rejected him and chosen the way of sin and chosen the way of selfishness and been uh, doomed to endless pains because of that, because of our own actions. At that point, Jesus enters into the story for God demonstrates his own great love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us that he came as our ransom, that he came and paid that price. He came and said, where we have rightly gone our own way and rightly, not rightly gone our own way, but where we have rightly earned the consequences of those actions, Jesus steps in and interrupts the story at that point. Jesus steps in and says, I will pay that price instead. Justice now revokes the sentence, the line in the song says. God's justice isn't thrown away. It just comes on Jesus instead of us as he becomes the ransom for us, as he pays that price for us. Justice now revokes the sentence. Mercy calls you, break your chains. Because Jesus said, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That he has called us to freedom from sin, to freedom from pain, to freedom from our past, to freedom from baggage, to freedom from what weighs us down and oppresses us. We are called to live free. And so Jesus has come and he has come and paid that price for us to bring us to freedom on every level, including scripture says the freedom from the fear of death, because as we grab a hold of him, life comes back to us for eternity. And death is not what it once was in our mind. So justice now revokes the sentence. Mercy calls you. Break your chains. The mercy of God is available. The mercy of God is here for anyone who would grab a hold of it and say, I need that mercy. I need that forgiveness. I'm going to turn from my sin, Jesus, and I'm going to follow after you. Freedom is the gift you get when you do that. It's a beautiful thing. Mercy calls you. Break your chains. Moving towards the end of the song. Saints, before the altar bending, watching long in hope and fear, suddenly the Lord descending in his temple shall appear. So as I mentioned, a lot of times these old hymns will have a chorus that points to the second coming. And that was a bit of a theme that they were always wanting to make sure it was in front of everybody. So saints before the altar bending, there is, uh, in certain streams of the church, they have titles of saints. And, uh, and they will have certain people, and they've typically been, uh, you know, especially holy people or especially devoted people or, or they, there is something special about them and so they're given the title of Saint uh, Christopher or Saint whatever. I just, that's my name. So I just had to, th just, just so you know, that's possible. Um, Saint whatever. And, and we don't do that in our uh, stream of the church. And, and it's, it's mainly just because scripture doesn't ever tell us to do that. Um, it's not wrong to have examples that we look up to by all means. Hopefully you have some people even here at Meadowbrook that you can look up to around you who uh, set an example for you of worship or, or generosity or serving or whatever. Uh, having examples that are human is not a bad thing in itself. Uh, but we don't want to elevate people to kind of different classes of following after Jesus. And the Bible doesn't ever reserve the word saint for the specially holy people. The Bible gives the word saint to anybody who follows after Jesus. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you're a saint. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a saint. Awesome to make the husbands and wives tell each other that. You are a saint. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a saint. And so saints, that term applies to everybody who follows after Jesus, not just the special ones. Saints is for everybody. So saints before the altar bending, we don't have a formal altar. Old churches used to have a very elaborate built up altar at the front, and that was where you came to pray. And so that's the picture, saints who are praying, saints who are coming to the altar and they are praying and they are waiting and they are hoping and they are waiting and they are hoping and they are praying and they are waiting because that's what we do as followers of Jesus. It's been said the followers of Jesus are awaiting people. We are waiting for him to return in the ultimate sense, but we're waiting for whatever else we're praying for, right? We're all typically praying for something. We're all typically waiting for something. There is something that we're praying into that hasn't happened yet. There is a promise from God's word that we're hoping for that has not come to pass yet. There are people that we're praying for that we have not seen come to the Lord yet. Like we are awaiting people. The people of God are awaiting people. And, and the call from scripture continually is don't lose that. Don't lose your patience. Don't lose your waiting. Don't lose your hope. The author of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 10, 35 to 37. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Uh, so much of the New Testament is pointing forward, just a reminder, he is coming, he is coming, he is coming. And that for much of church history has been one of the great motivators of, okay, well, we can't sit around uh, and do nothing because he's coming. And there are people who need to hear this gospel. So we need to be sure that we're sharing. We can't continue in our sin. What if I'm in the middle of the sin when he comes back? I got to get the sin out of my life because he's coming. I got to be faithful. I want to be found faithful so that when he comes, if it is in our lifetime, if it is in the next five minutes, whenever he returns, we are able to be living our lives in such a way that we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. That it is meant to, to drive us. And yet there's this warning in scripture over and over again, and Jesus would even tell parables about it, that, you know, sometimes you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait some more and then you wait and then you go on with your waiting and you wait and you wait and you wait and nothing ever changes and you go, okay, well, I'm just going to kind of give up on the waiting. Or sometimes you're waiting because you don't really have a choice, but you're not really hoping. You're not really believing. You're not letting the waiting motivate you. So beyond just the second coming, whatever you are waiting upon God for, don't throw away your confidence. Don't lose your perseverance. You don't know. Today could be the day on any level that God's prayer, your, your prayers to God get answered and that that blessing breaks forth. You don't know. And so our job is to, to be confident, to persevere, to encourage one another in it. Sometimes, you know, we go to people we love and we just, oh, we've been waiting for so long because we need some encouragement along the way. And then we need to encourage others. Uh, that's part of it. And so we, we spur each other on. We remind each other of God's faithfulness. We stir and build up hope in each other as we are waiting for him. Last verse, though an infant, now we view him, he shall fill his father's throne. Gather all the nations to him. Every knee shall then bow down. We talked about this in our last series, The Upside Down Kingdom, in the first week uh, out of Philippians chapter 2, which talks about Jesus, who being in very nature God, uh, didn't come to earth and try to be God. He didn't use his godness to try and benefit himself or do anything for himself. But when Jesus came to earth, he didn't come as glorious, majestic, knock you down and, and, and you know, intimidate you with the, the glory of the fear of the Lord. But when Jesus came, he took on the nature of a servant. He came in such an upside down way, right? There's nothing less threatening than a baby in a manger, right? There's no less you know, intimidating way 
for God to come into the world than the way he came. So although, yes, we see him as a baby, although he is coming in, that's not the fullness of who he is. Uh, the rest of Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11 says, Therefore, after the cross, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Although born as an infant, this is where that infant is going. He's not staying in these humble, uh, upside-down ways forever. He's going to live his life on earth that way, but then he is being exalted to the highest place. Then he's going to fill his father's throne. Then he's going to rule over the nations, and one day every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All are invited, because the call goes out to the whole world that Jesus Christ is Lord. Come and follow Jesus is the invitation. The last invitation of the song is come and worship, come and worship. Worship Christ, the newborn King. And when we talk about worship, worship is always an action word. It is not just an attitude of the heart, and we, we have to have that as well, but worship is always an action word. It is always something that we do. And so when we come together to sing our worship, we have to sing. And when we come together to give as our worship, we have to give. And when we want to live a life of devotion to him, we actually have to do things to live that out. Worship is not a, just a posture of the heart. It starts there, but it is always an action word. There is always something that we do. And so as we've gone through this song this morning and just kind of centered ourselves on this baby, this Emmanuel, this infant light, this one who has come to fill his father's throne, as we've gone through all of these lyrics and gone through all of this scripture, we wanted to give you a chance to respond in worship. So we're actually just gonna sing the song again. And now you're gonna be rock stars because you know what every line means and where it comes from. Uh, and so as we do, we're just gonna encourage you from your heart to give him the worship that he deserves. Uh, out of your understanding now, out of your devotion to him, out of our gratitude as we remember communion, that, uh, that here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world to save us. And, and that alone is enough to sing him songs forever. So stand with me, please, as we enter into worship one more time, and then we'll close in prayer. <laughs> 